you could at least set a chair. I said, it's not that far to the floor, really. But she says, well, at least don't pull the podium over with you. So kind and sweet she is, you know. Well, we, we joke about those things. We'll try to keep it. Try to keep it. I started to say down. Maybe that's not the right word. Less dramatic anyway. <clears throat> well, over the last several weeks, we have been discussing uh, the tabernacle and the wilderness and the various temples. A couple of them have been built and rebuilt. And a projection of one, perhaps, which may need to be built yet before this age is over. The one spoken of in Ezekiel 40 through 48. I think there's a good likelihood that that will need to be built uh, before Christ returns uh, in order to fulfill some of the prophecies of Daniel and other places. So that will be seen in due course and not very far down the road. But in this, in examining various scriptures, we saw the incredible quality which God has always plugged into even these physical temples. The opulence, the magnificence, the decorations, the, the glory, even physically that they might have had, which was eclipsed even further by the glory that was there once His presence was uh, made known or, or, be, or came to be there. So it is quite a story in the Scriptures about the quality that God seeks, that He is after, uh, he spares no wealth, he spares no effort, he spares no skill, but uses everything to make something that he puts his name, his stamp, and his presence in of the highest possible quality that can be. I think that comes through very, very clearly when you read those scriptures about them. And yet the story is not done. Let's go, first of all, today to Matthew 23 <coughs> and pick it up in verse 16. Christ is taking umbrage at the Pharisees again here, as he sometimes did. And he says, Woe to you, in verse 16, you blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. That was what they were saying. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple... He is bound. Uh, the original Greek was more in the terms of bound. In other words, the temple itself isn't that binding, but boy, the value in the gold that is there is what binds you. Or it could be translated perhaps a debtor. Uh, there is where you owe your debt is to the gold of the temple, not the temple itself. Now, what did Christ say about that? You fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? Gold is beautiful, and mankind throughout history has valued gold very highly. But in terms of God's value, the sanctification of God, His presence is far greater than any physical value that you could attach to gold by far. So he said, you're blinded by the wrong things. You're looking at the physical, and it is the spiritual that is the true value. And we'll see 
true gold as opposed to physical ore. So let's approach this today from the standpoint of the temple and what that might mean for us sitting here today. Let's go first of all to 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3. Paul has quite a little to say about the temple in terms of the New Testament and what he was seeing before him, the physical temple that Herod had rebuilt, was still there at the time Paul was saying this. But he uh, impressed upon them a different value. Chapter 3, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with meat, for up till now you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are you able. So he was speaking to these converted, called out people, uh, and yet there was still a level of understanding, perhaps, a level of compliance or commitment that was not where it needed to be. So they were still babes in Christ in that sense, even after having been preached to for quite some time. And he explains that, for you are yet carnal. That just seems means fleshly. You still go by the thoughts, the desires, the pressures of the flesh. We tend to walk in the flesh more than in the spirit. That's just human nature. That's the way we are. That's the way we're built. That's the way we were created, to have this nature about us. There is a reason for that. God wasn't trying to punish Adam and Eve by giving them a nature that was contrary to God. What he was doing was providing an avenue whereby he might prove us through trial, tribulation, trouble, loss, difficulty, if you will, to see if we wanted the kingdom of God and life forever so badly that we would go against our very own nature and come to react to the nature of God. In other words, walk in the spirit rather than the flesh. And it is a lifelong battle against the flesh. What is natural to us? Lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, envy, all those works of the flesh. That's what's natural to us. Taking care of self, pleasing self, making self feel good. That is our nature. It is not God's nature. That has to be transplanted or grafted into us by His Spirit and through a lot of work on our part. It wasn't intended to be easy. Satan was a created being, and he rebelled against God and thought his way was better. And God doesn't want that to happen with you and me. He is not going to grant us eternal life unless and until we show him sufficiently in his judgment that we will be faithful and true to his way of life forevermore. He does not want any more rebellion in the universe. There's been plenty of that. doesn't need to be any more. That's why we go through what we go through and why they were yet fleshly. 
For whereas there is among you envying and strife and division, are you not carnal and walk as men? So then he describes why he could say that, that they were yet carnal. Because within them they had envying among themselves, jealousies, which come natural, strife, having trouble getting along with one another, division, splitting, dividing. He says, if you have those things, you're still walking and thinking as men, not as God. Because within the kingdom of God and the holy animals, holy animals, holy angels, I meant, there is not strife and division. There are not these human difficulties we find ourselves fighting with. Now, there was at one point when Satan took a third of the angels with him. And that rebellion is still being felt to this day. And it is being felt very strongly among mankind who are influenced by Satan and his ways and his thinking. And when we have these things that he says are the effects of the flesh, then we are yet carnal. I guess we have to consider ourselves still babes then, don't we? If we have these things. For while one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Are you not picking your heroes? Well, I'll follow Apollos, I'll follow Paul, I'll follow Peter, whatever. What about followers of Christ? You know, men have their faults, their problems, their attitudes, their weaknesses. Christ doesn't. So be followers of Christ. Now, you can look to those whom Christ has sent for guidance, for leadership, and so on, but that's not where you really look. Because it is easy for people to look at a man who has been designated or set aside to preach, to teach, to guide, to lead spiritually, and you might see or perceive or think you see faults in that person, and there are, they will be there always, whether you're reading them right and the right ones or not, who knows, but they will be there. But human beings, if they look to a man, have a tendency to make their highest standard the lowest standard that they see of their physical teacher. That's just a fact. Whether it be in sports, whether it be in education, whether it be in warfare, or in Christianity. The lowest you see a man go, who's supposedly your leader, is the highest you will go, if you make it that high. So don't look there. <clears throat> who is Paul? Who is Apollos? But servants by whom you believed, even as the Eternal gave to every man, I have planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. So then neither is he that plants anything, neither he that waters but God that gives the increase. Man is only here to help direct you to God. And that's where your strength, your help, your goals, your purposes are all centered. Let's move on down. 
uh, to verse 10. According to the grace of God which is given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds thereon. But let every man take heed how he builds. So Paul says, I brought you the truth. Now there are ministers in your area to build on the foundation of truth I laid there. And you have to build on that. No one can hold your hand. No one can, can live your life. No one can make choices for you. You have to make those yourselves. I cannot get you into the kingdom of God. Have no chance whatsoever. I can't get myself there. All I can do is seek to obey God the best I can and pray that I'll be a vessel of mercy. And we'll see that scripture a little later. You have to build. For other foundation can no man lay than that that is laid, which is Emmanuel. That's the only, he's the chief cornerstone, see? He is the foundation rock. Build on that. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble, you can build your Christian life, relationship with God, in different ways. You can use different materials. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Do you build with wood, hay, stubble? First time the fire touches that, goes up pretty fast. Now, if you build on gold, silver, precious stones, they are harder, they are more enduring. And when you put heat and fire to silver or gold ore, it purifies it. It cleanses it. It gets the impurities out so that it becomes fine gold or fine silver. When they refine it today, they try to get it 0.999% pure. And they've even gone further than that recently, 0.9999% pure is their goal and their purpose. That is why God puts the fire to us, to purify us as vessels of honor. When the pressure comes, when the heat comes, what endures? Precious stones are even made with great heat and pressure. It's how they're formed in the earth. How can we come to be precious gemstones or gold and silver without heat and pressure? It just won't happen. A human being left to himself degenerates, goes downhill, doesn't accomplish much. Now you might point out somebody that, hey, they're a pretty good person. Well, maybe in some respects they are. But look at the whole history of man. Look at what exists upon the face of this earth today and tell me it's wonderful and good. Tell me that we've made a lot of progress, let's say, in the last hundred years beyond what people were a hundred, two hundred years ago. I look back at even my own relatives, my grandparents, great-grandparents, who grew up in a totally different society than you and I did. And they were stronger, better, more moral, more high-thinking in many respects than our society is today. 
we have become far more immoral and decadent and in every way slipped. Evolution, if it were true, is headed backward right now, looking at what's happening in the world. No, it takes pressure. It takes heat. That's what God is putting us through so that we might be refined. If any man's work, verse 14, abide which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So, if you don't build right, it's possible that the mercy of God can help make up the difference. But it's scary to just go ahead and do what comes naturally to a human being, not grow, not overcome, not fight yourself in this battle of the flesh and the spirit, and then say, God, have mercy. He is far more likely to show mercy if he sees you putting forth effort, if he sees change, if you're overcoming. That triggers mercy in God. Notice verse 16. Know you not. Do you not know? Do you realize that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Think about that in light of all that we have studied the last weeks. Of the gold, the silver, the ornateness, the fine craftsmanship, where God even gave extra gifts to men to be able to craft things for those tabernacles and temples far beyond their own human capacities and abilities. That is what he thinks of when he thinks of or plans or builds a temple. And he says, we are the temple of God. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. Those are pretty strong words. Our bodies, our minds are the temple of the Spirit of God. We cannot defile our bodies or our minds and live that way, or we will be destroyed. It's just that simple. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So there is a call by Paul not to walk in the flesh, but to walk in the Spirit. And a very strong warning. He didn't have to yell and shout and scream. He just said, look, you're the temple, and God only builds holy temples. So the bottom line is, we need to be holy. Is God going to dwell within us? He says he will. Let no man deceive himself. If any man... Among you seems to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. Let him put aside all his worldly knowledge, all his so-called wisdom he's gained from the universities or wherever, and realize there's a God in heaven who is alive, 
And he is working through us to build a holy temple. And we're going to see the purpose of that a little later on. Let's move on then from there to 1 Corinthians 6. I kind of took these in order out of the concordance. Uh, so uh, it's here a little and there a little. 1 Corinthians 6, let's begin in verse 15. We think it's just our mind that is the temple of the Spirit. I think we'll find it's our body also. Because our brain is part of our physical body. And our mind is a function of that brain. So you can't really separate the physical and the spiritual in that sense. Verse 15, Know you not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Not just our mind, but our bodies. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. A lot of people have the philosophy in life today that it's my body. I can do with it what I please. I can please myself. Whatever seems good or plays pleasing to me, do it. I can put into my body anything I want to that tastes good to me. I beg to differ with you. Paul and God <laughs> beg to differ with you. What? Know you not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, says he, shall be one flesh. The very act of a sexual relationship binds two people together in a way that cannot be combined in any other form. Okay? But he that is joined to the eternal is one spirit. Well, that's something different. That's something higher. It's above the physical relationship, be it out in a sinful one or even in a righteous one. It is to picture the becoming of one spirit with God. Flee. Don't rub up to on the internet, the television, the dumb phone or whatever you have. Flee fornication. Movies. Every sin that a man does is without the body, but he that commits fornication sins against his own body. It does something emotionally, mentally, to a person that other sins don't do. It has a deeper effect, if you will. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own. If you think you learned God's truth, committed yourself to it, were baptized, had the Holy Spirit given you by the laying on of hands, and you still belong to you, you have another think coming. You don't belong to you anymore. You cannot do what you want to do for you anymore. You have no right to please yourself in any way contrary to the way of God. You are not your own. For you are bought with a price. The price was Christ's blood, his death paying for our sins. Because by nature and by life, we have polluted our minds, our bodies, 
We have polluted the air around us and the ground we walk upon. We have disdained and ruined everything God has given us. Revelation even says, Woe to them that pollute the earth. We have done this contrary to God. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, there is a tall order and a high standard. Everything we do with our bodies and our mind or the spirit that is in man or the spirit of God within us is to glorify God. What we think, what we eat, what we do, how we control and manage our lives, everything about them has to do with God. If you think it's my body, it's my mind, I can do with it as I please, I repeat, you're wrong. Christ bought you, heart, mind, body, and soul. You belong to him. His ways are now your ways. The ways of the world are not your ways. They aren't. Let's go then to uh, Romans 9. I'll touch on a few more to emphasize this. Romans 9, beginning in verse 20. <coughs> no, but, O oh man, who are you that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why have you made me thus? Why did you make me like I am? If you don't like the way I am, why did you make me this way? your fault. All my problems, all my sins, they're your fault, God. You made me this way. Take me as I am, Lord, the Protestants sometimes tell you or sing. All I have to do is accept the name Jesus, and I'll be in the kingdom of God. Oh, no, 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 no. He don't want you the way you are, to use bad grammar to say it. He wants you different. He wants you like the Father and like the Son. So take me as I am does not work. You can't use that excuse. You made me this way. Yeah, he made us this way. And he says, now fix it. By my power, by my spirit, now fix it. Prove to me that you will live my way throughout eternity and I will give you eternity. He won't do it again unless he is convinced you will live according to his purposes and his principles forevermore. That is the key in his mind. You might not be perfect when Christ returns, but you may have overcome, you may have grown, you may have changed, you may have worked at it. And what he has seen you do, you can't earn it. But you can work at it and overcome. And then he looks down and he says, You know, so and so, still got problems. But you know, here's where they were and here's where they are now. And they've been working at it hard. 
I'm going to give him the gift anyway. But he's got to be convinced that you mean it. What if God, willing to show his anger and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared to glory? God is willing to show mercy. And I expect we will all, to one degree or another, if we make it, be a vessel of mercy. We'll all need a certain amount of it. <clears throat> Even us, whom he has called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. It doesn't matter about race whatsoever. God opens the mind, and anyone can follow his ways. It doesn't make any difference. That is what counts. First Thessalonians uh, 1, uh, oh, 4. First Thessalonians 4 what I want, and beginning with verse 1. Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by Emmanuel, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. It is my job here to read the scriptures to you, to show you what you need to do, and then you are to go out and do that and please God in so doing. For you know what commandments we gave you by Emmanuel. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. God set you apart personally. That you should abstain from fornication. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. This vessel, this body that his spirit abides in, has to be lived or treated as if it is set aside for holiness and honor. We are to be honorable in everything we do, everything we think, and how we live. Not in the lust of concupiscence or covetousness, even as the Gentiles which know not God. And spiritually speaking, Gentiles can be physical Israelites, but Gentiles in mind. The appellation of Gentile simply means anyone apart from God on a spiritual basis. It has nothing to do with physical blood. And a spiritual Jew is one who serves God no matter what his physical race. So it is a spiritual differentiation. That no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any manner, because that the eternal is the avenger of all such as we also have forewarned you and testified. How many times have I said Christ is going to judge us according to how we treat others? It's that simple. He says it so many ways. Paul says it again here. For God has not called us to uncleanness, but to holiness. We are here to become holy vessels, wherein God can comfortably abide forevermore. He, therefore, that despises, despises not men, but God, who has also given to us his Holy Spirit. You can despise me and what I'm trying to teach you, but you're not despising me. You're despising God. 
Because these are the words of God. You have to look beyond my faults, weaknesses, attitudes, whatever, and look to God. That's what it's all about. God even told Samuel, they haven't despised you, Samuel, they've despised me. So it's really, when we look down upon man, be it minister or our brother in the church, we are despising God who called that member in the church. Every one of you, as a baptized Christian, was chosen by personality, by name, by God, by Christ. And if I despise any one of you, or you despise me, you are literally despising God. You're despising the calling that He gave to that person. You're despising His Spirit and His work within that person. You're putting down something that God is working with. Do we think about it in those terms? I think we probably know it, but we tend to forget it. And we think, well, that's just so-and-so, and he's got this problem, that problem, the other problem, and she's this and she's that. No, he or she is God's chosen vessel that his mind and his spirit is dwelling within. And if we despise one another, we are despising God Almighty. We need to keep that in mind we would get along a whole lot better. We wouldn't be walking in the flesh. We'd be walking in a knowledge and a way of the Spirit. And we'd get along a whole lot better. But it is the self-righteousness that causes us to despise man and thereby despise God. <clears throat> Second Thessalonians 2. Or no, Second Timothy, I mean. Second Timothy 2. And here, let's pick it up in verse 19. Nevertheless, the foundation of God stands sure. God has established a foundation in Christ, in us. He is the founding chief cornerstone. Having this seal, the eternal knows them that are His. He knows us if we're His. And let every one that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. If you name the name of Christ on yourself, or you call yourself a Christian, you are required by that status to get rid of iniquity, sin, lawlessness, anything contrary to God's way. But in a great house... Those that we've examined, the tabernacle, the temples, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel to honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared to every good work. That is why it was such a great sin when Belshazzar drank from the golden vessels of the temple. Because he was an unholy, filthy 
human being who had not God. And for him to take those golden cups from God's temple and have a riotous, adulterous party and drink from those caused God to send an angel who wrote on the wall. Many days are numbered. You've been found wanting. You will die this night. And he did. That's how God looks upon his holy vessels. We are. We've already read it today. His holy vessels. And who is the most likely person to insult, to corrupt, to misuse, abuse your holy vessel? You are. We defile ourselves with the filthiness of our minds and the junk we put in our bodies. We defile his holy temple. Scary business when you look at the whole panoply of history and how God has built in the past and what he is trying to build within us today. And he wants the very best that can be. That's what he's after. Now, we may not have started that way. We may not have been a vessel of honor. We may have been as sinful as you can get. Paul said he was the cheapest of sinners, even killed Christians. He did it physically, we just do it with words. But it's the same thing. Same thing exactly. So we may not start out as vessels of honor. But we are to become that, make no mistake. Sanctified and meet for the Master's use. God wants to be able to use us in His holy temple forevermore as an example to the rest of the universe, whatever that may contain in the future, of godliness and holiness, peace, happiness, contentment, and without division or strife or envy or jealousy or any of these human things that we still fight against. Become a vessel of honor. Now, all of us are still a mix of honor and dishonor. So we need to be purging the dishonorable and become truly a holy vessel of honor. That's a good phrase to remember, a vessel of honor. What does Isaiah 52, 11 say? Be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. He is selecting people right now, today, to finish his end time work, to build probably a physical temple and certainly a spiritual temple as an example and a light to the whole world of what living godly ought to be. We are being tried and tested and put through all kinds of difficulties in order to purge us, to cleanse us, to prepare us as vessels that God can use to show the world a godly way of life. Right here and now, and in the very near future, when the world goes under the new world order and the satanic government 
and only a few will obey God. And the contrast between the light on the hill and the rest of the world is going to be great. How much contrast is there between you and me and this world around us? If someone's around us a little bit, will they see the light of God? Or will they see carnality, humanness, lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, envy, negativity, whatever? are the works of the flesh. What will they see? Let's be sure they see what God wants them to see. Proverbs 25. Proverbs 25, and here I want verse 4. Take away the dross from the silver... And there shall come forth a vessel for the finer. Take away the impurities. Take away the wicked from before the king, and his throne shall be established in righteousness. Revelation 5.10, we're to be kings and priests in the kingdom of God. So we have to take away the dross, purge the unrighteousness, and be clean. Isaiah 66, right at the end of Isaiah I didn't write down the verse. Let's see, where is it here? I thought it was right at the end. Verse 17, They that sanctify themselves and purify themselves in the gardens behind one tree in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination in the mouth shall be consumed together, says the Eternal. You can do the ways of this world... And tell yourself that you're okay, that you'll make it, that you'll be all right. But don't delude yourself. Don't deceive yourself. You'll be destroyed. It does say here somewhere, my eye won't fall on it, I won't take time. It talks about being a clean vessel before God. Somewhere in that chapter. But let's move on. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 6 now. 2 Corinthians 6. I need to hurry along. I've got several scriptures I want to cover in the time I have. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Be you not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion has light with darkness? Not only are we to be different than the world, we are not to be yoked with them. That is not where our communication, our time, our friendship should be. Don't go there. It will cause problems for you. What communion does dark and lightness have together? It is a truism that that which is evil corrupts that which is good. Good does not raise evil to its level. If you were around this world and the people in it, you will go to their levels so very quickly it will astonish you. Believe me. Been there, done that. You cannot mix with this world. What concord has Christ with Baal? 
Or what part has he that believes with an infidel, an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Idols of materiality, not just necessarily idols of wood and stone or gems, but all kinds of idols that we have in this world that distract us from God. Anything that comes between you and God is an idol. That is why we worship ourselves more than we worship anything else. We are our own idol and our own worst enemy. Whatever pleases me, whatever I want, whatever feels good, that I want to do. And then, if we think it or do it, we have put ourselves ahead of God. That is self-worship. That is idolatry. You are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So he will literally dwell in your mind. His Spirit will be there and take up residence there. Remember what happened when God filled the tabernacle or the temple of Solomon with glory and the fire that came? What a dramatic thing it was. And when he first gave his spirit in Acts 2 to the New Testament church, it came with fire and with power that alarmed and scared everyone. So don't take it lightly if the Spirit of God is dwelling within you. And remember that he will only dwell in a holy place. That's why Paul says in Thessalonians not to quench the Spirit. Because evil, evil thinking, evil actions, quench it. They dampen it. They make it unable to function as a help and a force within us. For we are the temple of the living God. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be you separate, says the Eternal, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. How much do we still touch the unclean thing? On the internet? On the television? In movies? Music? What are they about? They're about murder, violence. They are about illicit sex. They are about everything ungodly. And we still look upon them as entertainment. That is not entertainment. It is sin. The video games, what are they? Mostly killing and violence. And then we wonder why kids do mass murders having played those games and become accustomed to that kind of thing. We are not to touch the unclean thing. We are to be innocent in sin and experts in righteousness. And when we partake, sidle up to, get involved in anything that is ungodly, we're in trouble. We are not becoming holy vessels. We're being compromised by Satan and the system that is around us. Here is a very severe warning. Come out from among them, my people, 
be not partakers of their sins. Don't touch the unclean thing. We can move away from the city out into the field as Micah, Zephaniah, and others instruct us. But do we bring the garbage with us? Do we still imbibe of it out here? Did we come out physically, but not mentally, emotionally, and spiritually? If so, we still have a lot of work to do to be a vessel of honor. Let's go to Ephesians 2. I hope today can inspire us to be vessels of honor, but I hope it also makes us think very deeply about the dishonorable that is still in us. Very soberly thinking of that as well. Ephesians 2, verse 18. For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. We need to be inspired, empowered by that. To realize God has called us out of this satanic, ungodly world and given us an opportunity to be special to Him. To be a vessel of honor to Him. Wow, what a calling. What an opportunity. Saints, fellowships, fellow citizens with a household of God. Christ is building a household. He's preparing a wife and children for his family forever. And we're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Emmanuel himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together grows to a holy temple in the eternal. Wouldn't it be nice when Christ returns in the resurrection? And everything had been prepared ahead of time. That his bride had made herself ready. She had done all the hammering and all the chipping and all that was necessary. The noise, the confusion, to become holy. And it could be done quietly and simply because everything simply fits together perfectly. That's the way God builds a temple. That's the way he wants his bride to be when he returns. Everything can go together perfectly, soundlessly, completely, and perfectly. Fitly framed together, a holy temple in whom you also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Something worthy of God living within. That to me is a very scary thought. When I think about what I sometimes allow to go through my mind, what attitudes I may have, and I stop to think that my mind is to be a habitation of the Spirit of God and that he wants to live comfortably inside this head. I have a way to go. 
Second Thessalonians two. Second Thessalonians two. Well, I'm having trouble getting there. Uh, here, uh, let's. I, I don't want to take the time to go through all this, but he says, "We beseech you, brethren, by the coming of Emmanuel and by our gathering together to him." that you not be soon shaken in mind, or be troubled neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter is from us, as at the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Now they had men who entered that early New Testament church who did a minor fulfillment of this, who stood and polluted the temple of God. And it says he will sit in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God, or worshiping himself and putting himself as an idol ahead of God, as we sometimes do. Now, we have seen a minor fulfillment of that. I say minor, at least by comparison. When Joseph de Koch stood in the temple of God and placed himself and his beliefs ahead of God. That was a partial fulfillment of this on a spiritual level within the church. I have no doubt of that. And he created a great falling away from truth. And people are still falling away and not enduring to the end as we have to do. Now there's to be yet another. Because it says down here that it will be allowed and it will happen. Verse 8, and, and then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Eternal shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, with all deceivableness. There is one yet coming on the whole world scene, not just the church scene, who is going to defile the temple of God again. It's got to be built first, according to Daniel. And then it will be defiled by this false prophet, spoken of in the book of Revelation and other places. People will lose the love of the truth and not be saved and become unrighteous. So we have this yet to come. God does not like his temple defiled. And when this false prophet tries to defile everything that God is building on this earth, and he will go against the holy ones, according to Daniel 11 and Daniel 9. And some of them will fall, we read last week. God hates that. And he will consume the beast and the false prophet when he returns with fire. Now that can be, again, a warning to us. That if God dwells in a temple, be it a physical one, be it a spiritual one, He wants it to be holy and clean and pure. And if it is defiled, it will be destroyed. Whether it be physical temple that is to be built, the church, or us as individuals. He does not take lightly the defiling of His temple. He does not take it lightly when we defile our bodies and our minds. Because we are bought with a price. We belong to Him. And we are vessels of holiness 
not of filth, not of pollution. Second Corinthians 4. And here I want uh, verse 6. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Emmanuel. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We have the spirit, the mind of God dwelling within us, but it's in, at this point, an earthen vessel. Dirt, mud, flesh. That the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Of and by ourselves, we cannot be godly, we cannot be righteous, we cannot be holy. He made us human, capable of death, and it is appointed to all of us once to die. We can't be holy on our own. It's impossible. But the excellency of the power may be of God, not us. We cannot take credit if we grow, if we overcome, if we change, if we become holy, because we're not going to get there without God's help. It won't happen. You have to lay hold of God. You have to seek Him with all your heart if you expect to become righteous and holy. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. True so far? Troubled on every side, every aspect of life, emotionally, physically, spiritually, we face trials, troubles, tribulations, and difficulties. So we're troubled. We want this, we want that, we want fulfillment, we want whatever we want. So we're troubled. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We don't have everything the way we want it, and there is perplex. There are perplexing conditions in the world, frustrating conditions. Hard to be a Christian when you're living in a world of sin. Very perplexing. But not distressed or not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. We can have men persecute us. We can have men put us down, but not be forsaken of God. Cast down but not destroyed. We can be cast down by others. We cast ourselves down by dabbling in things that are ungodly, but not destroyed by it. We cannot allow ourselves to be destroyed. Many of our brethren in the church have departed and spiritually died and become destroyed. The Spirit of God is there to empower us so that we don't go down and become destroyed. Let's go to Revelation 3. And here I want verse 12. Him that overcomes will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. If you've been sanctified and set apart as a vessel of holiness before God, If you claim Christianity, that's what you have done. 
You set your side, self aside and God has designated you and set you aside to overcome. And if you do, you will be a pillar in the temple of God. One that upholds it throughout eternity. And he shall go no more out, will always be there. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. We overcome and grow and become vessels of honor and holiness. God is going to give us a name of holiness. He calls things what they are. What is your name going to be when Christ returns? Mud? Lake of fire? Incorrigible? Sinful? Or will it be holy? Upright, honest, true, faithful, godly. Those are the names we're shooting for. And we can have them. He didn't create us to be destroyed, brethren. He didn't call us to fail. He called us to succeed. And He is there if we will call upon Him so that we can overcome and can grow by His power, not of ourselves. If you think you can drift through life, not praying, not studying, not seeking God, and you'll be part of the kingdom of God, you are kidding yourself. You're deceiving yourself. Because you cannot overcome human nature of and by yourself. We already read that. You must find God. How can we get over the strife, the envy, the division, the gossip, the negativity that sometimes besets us? There's only one way. You can't do it by willpower. You cannot do it by telling yourself, I can't say those things. You can't do it by any other means than getting on your knees and beseeching your eternal heavenly Father with all your heart that you overcome the works of the flesh and live by the fruit of the Spirit. You can't do it by human power, willpower, self-help books, or any other way. You can do it by seeking God with all your heart. That's how you will overcome. That's how you will grow. That's how you will become a vessel of honor. No other way. TV won't do it. Internet won't do it. Movies won't do it. Vacations won't do it. Working hard won't do it. Seeking God will do it. First Peter... Three, uh, no, First Peter one, verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Emmanuel, which according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a lively hope 
by the resurrection of Emmanuel from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fades not away reserved in heaven for you. He's positive about it. He's reserved it for you. Let no man take your crown, he says. I'm here. I'm, I'm here to do it. I'm here to help you. Come to me who are kept by the power of God through faith to salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's see. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season it need be, or if need be, you are in heaviness through many temptations, that the trial of your faith, it has to be. Our faith has to be tried. It has to be tested being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found to praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Emmanuel. What did Christ say in Matthew 23? It's not the gold. It's the temple that sanctifies the gold. God dwelling in us purifying our character so that it becomes fine gold, pure, clean, honorable. It isn't the gold. It's the indwelling of God that is what is really important. Revelation 11, verse 1. There was given me a reed like a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. Speaking of the spiritual temple, the church here, the two witnesses are told to measure the ministry and the people that dwell here. But the court which was without the temple, leave out and measure it not. It is given to the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty-two months. God's concern right now is with those whom he has called out from the world and given his knowledge, his truth, his understanding. That's what is done first. Revela- I mean, Zechariah 14, or 4, Excuse me. Zechariah 4 talks about the two witnesses giving the golden oil, the words of God, to all seven of the churches. That's what's important right now, is the true gold, the real gold. Physical gold doesn't mean much. Spiritual gold is everything. It is everything. Now, true, we may need to build a physical temple and we may use physical gold to do it. But that isn't what is important. It's the spiritual gold. Measure that first. Check that first. Revelation 14. I've got just a little bit more here. Revelation 14 and verse 15. And another angel came out of the temple, the temple in heaven. The place of God's throne, where he resides, and Christ and the holy angels and the twenty-four elders with him. That's the real temple today. The highest, the most important one. Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. 
the ungodliness, the unholiness, the filth, the pollution has to be harvested and burned. And that's what these angels are commanded to do. Take care of that. Chapter 15, verse 5. And and after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure and white linen. They were righteous. They were coming from the throne of God. And having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave to the seven angels seven golden vials, full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. God is not going to come and dwell eternally among men until the filth of this earth is essentially destroyed in the seven last plagues purified, cleansed, destroyed by death. And then a fit man is going to grab Satan, and Christ is the only one fit to do it, and bind him a thousand years so that he cannot influence man, and the earth is going to be rebuilt with peace and plenty and prosperity. And when men do decide to want to sin, a voice will say, this is the way, walk you in it. And he will rule with a rod of iron, Christ is full of mercy, of pity, of care, of love, but he will not brook any rebellion. We will, or the people will, live in harmony with God's laws, or someone will tap them on the shoulder. Violence, sin, pollution will no longer be permitted. Let's wrap this up then with that thought in Revelation 21. Verse 9. There came to me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues. The last, seven last plagues destroy most of what is left of life on this earth. I think Daniel indicates maybe 100 million only will survive out of about 7 billion to come under the rule of, the, of Christ at the beginning of the millennium. So one of those who delivered the seven last plagues came and talked with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. So the destruction of Satan, the pollution of man, the sin will be resolved in death or the captivity of Satan. So that a new world, a new order, a true new world order of God can be established after the new world order of man, which is being established, is destroyed once and for all. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, the upper heaven, not the one here having the glory of God. And her light was like to a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Pure, holy, clear. All unholiness removed. 
perfect in righteousness, will be the bride of Christ. And it had the walls with the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Twelve foundations, the twelve apostles, verse 14. But let's go down and read verse, let's see, 18. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. Well, God has shown us with the tabernacle in the wilderness, with Solomon's temple, with what will be built again here in the end, how he builds with fine and pure gold, the finest materials, the finest craftsmanship. Christ is the finest crafter of holy, righteous character that there is. And he's working on you and me today, daily, working on us to form us, to fashion us in body and mind and in spirit as he is. The master craftsman. Submit to him as clay will to a potter. Let him form us. Let him mold us. Let him make us. Seek him so that we can become clear as crystal and pure. Verse 19, And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, chalcedony, emerald, sardonyx, and so on. Verse 21, And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Huge gates. How big an oyster? I don't know. Every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were, transparent glass. Not just a small temple. A city, 1,500 miles cubed, roughly. Pure gold. Streets so pure, you can see through. Like transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. The ultimate, final temple in God's plan is for the Father and the Son to come here at the beginning of the millennium, as we've seen in the series on uh, how... Uh, trying to say it, how exclusive is the church. The finest, last, eternally enduring temple will have the Father and the Son as its, or the, the city will have the Father and the Son as its temple. You can't get any better than that. The final temple is the most magnificent of all. He's been working through that He's been showing us through the ages a little smattering of what shall be and can be and what is so demanding about him. And then the final fulfillment is so resplendent in glory that we cannot even picture it and understand it. The Father and the Son are the temple of that great city which is comprised of the Father, the Son, and His Bride, the 144,000. That's it. Those are the first fruits. Revelation 14.4 The city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, 
For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Is it any wonder he tells us to be the light of the world? The gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations to it. And there shall in no wise, no way, no how, enter into it anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works abomination or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's the holy city that will be. And that's what we aspire to be part of. To be the very bride of Christ. Perfect, shining and resplendent in glory in every way. And that's why he calls upon us now to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. To not allow any defilement in our minds or in our bodies to build our bodies with the best ingredients we can find to put in them and to fill our minds with the word of God so that it might be clean and pure and holy. You know what? Satan has made it real easy to imbibe the ways of the flesh. Every media outlet there is. Everything pushes And at the pressure of a button, you can have any kind of sin you want right in your face. It's easy to get in a car and go import it into your mind. It comes so easy. Why does reading the Bible come so hard? Because our carnal mind, our fleshly normal mind is enmity to God. I'm going to read one more passage to you. I don't know how we go from what we just read in Revelation. Anything else, I guess, would be anticlimactic in some respects. But I want to read 2 Peter 3, verse 9 to you, through verse 14. 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse 9. The eternal is not slack concerning his promise. The wonderful promises we've read about today and the others. He's not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish. It is not his will that any of us perish. He wants us in his kingdom. He loves every human being who has ever lived. But that all should come to repentance, and all will have their chance in the millennium or great white throne judgment, or now. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Not the planet, but everything that is on it. We've proved that before from other scriptures in Isaiah and other places. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conduct 
and godliness. Looking for and hasting to the coming of the day of God, when the heavens being on fire will be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent high heat. Nevertheless, in spite of all that is coming, this horror, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, that would be you. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace, without spot, and blameless.